You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So Tim Pawlenty or Mitt Romney get the Republican nomination for president. Because they need some Washington experience to beef up their offering, they choose former President George W. Bush. To counter, President Obama drops Joe Biden and picks Jimmy Carter, former president, to replace Biden as his vice president. Can this happen? We'll look at this question and also address some questions from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics listeners today. Kristen McHale, watching the events in Egypt, I found my mind to thoughts on a quote that was I was told was said by President Kennedy, those who make gradual change impossible make violent change inevitable. Did the Egyptian people just prove Kennedy wrong? Mubarak certainly didn't allow change, but the bringers of change went to great lengths to make sure their change wasn't violent. The violent people in Egypt were the ones fighting the change. Did the Egyptians just prove that it's possible to have massive political revolution against an opponent that will not give an inch without violence? I do believe that our politicians should stop supporting corrupt foreign leaders, Kristen McHale writes. Will the recent events cause our leaders to reconsider the on-the-ground conditions of the government we help? Well, thanks, Kristen. There's a, it's a meaty and relevant question, and there's a couple of angles there. Change in Egypt, a new dawn. Rightly, the people there have reason to celebrate. The Kennedy quote you cite, I didn't get a chance to actually look up whether it was Kennedy or someone else, let's just assume it was, uh, is in a sense proven untrue. As someone who was certainly preventing gradual change, Mubarak, didn't end up stirring violence because those people decided not to be violent, did everything they could. Those who make gradual change impossible make violent change inevitable. It comes down to some basic political science, perhaps. It's not true that change can only happen with violence, nor is it true that change can always happen without it. Because the use of violence has consequences. It has blowback, which can topple a leader. And so that's what you have to look at. Okay, Egypt is not the only story out there. There are some fairly recent uh, situations where people nonviolently were able to make change. East Germany, the bringing down of the Berlin Wall and the reunification of Germany. Yugoslavia, there are other situations where it required a violent overthrow or at least the military getting involved for change to happen. So you have the Philippines when Ferdinand Marcos was overthrown and Corazon Aquino was put uh, in the presidency of the Philippines, it required the military to intervene and make it clear they weren't supporting uh, Marcos. It's a little bit of a different and slightly unusual situation that occurred in Egypt. Those are the happy stories. 
Tiananmen Square, 1989, student protesters, middle-class office workers protesting in Beijing. When Gorbachev is going to visit there, and there's going to be a lot of uh, world attention on Beijing, citizens of that capital city protesting, and uh, things got pretty ugly. And the military was unable to control the situation. In fact, many of the tank units that were from the city of Beijing would not fire on the protesters in Tiananmen Square. The Chinese leaders had a meeting. They convened and they decided that two things were going to happen. They were going to get overthrown and lose power in the way you see in Egypt, in the way you saw in East Germany, etc. Or... They were going to crush the rebellion, in a sense, and that's what happened. The TV cameras are off. We don't have pictures of what happened there, but that rebellion was crushed. Now, the Chinese government instituted some reforms. The economy has been growing there, and a new generation has a changed view of things. There's still some remembrances about Tiananmen Square, but that's a very different uh, outcome in that situation, and the same powerful group was kept in charge, despite the fact that there was a largely nonviolent protest occurring and a large one that might have toppled the government. Here in this situation, it looks like if Mubarak had turned his military on the protesters, the revolution would probably get worse, impossible to handle, and there would be issues with his benefactors, Europe and America, who were getting tired of his rule in the wake of protests anyway. Given that you have new leaders in the U.S. and Britain, You have uh, Barack Obama in the United States and the coalition government of David Cameron and Nick Clegg in Great Britain. They can hit the reset button and look at foreign policy in a new way, and they didn't owe as many personal favors to this one particular ruler who's been on the throne 30 years. So it's better to examine the real power players in any situation rather than apply a quote like the Kennedy quote to everyone. This revolution, in my estimation, is one of simply the establishment, or enough of it, tiring of Mubarak, the same middle-class power elite and the military. But you can't separate it from this popular revolution, and you can't ignore that popular revolution that we saw on TV either. You can't eliminate the, the use of the Facebook and the social networking and also Al Jazeera and the new forms of, of media you know, keeping the pressure on the government By filming these protesters, and you can't ignore the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of these protesters, large numbers of people, you know, leaving their families and going to protest in Tahir Square for a new country. So all of that is together. Even if the establishment was tired of Mubarak, they weren't doing anything about it, and so this protest obviously is a factor. The most important power faction that you can see in Egypt is the military. The military never quite turned against Mubarak. They didn't, you know, send the tanks to the presidential palace as they had with Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines. This never quite happened. The military played a very strategic and adroit role. A problem occurred when thugs, most likely hired by Mubarak or his sons or supporters of Mubarak, attempted to break the rally, coming in on camels and uh, with iron rods and trying to turn them violent, trying to present the image that this was merely a civil war of anti-Mubarak versus pro-Mubarak. At first, the military stuck to their guns and did nothing. They stayed neutral, but by the second or third day, they started splitting the two groups, when it was pretty clear that these pro-Mubarak supporters were, were basically hired thugs. So it goes to show you how even 
in the wake of not being able to use his military, Mubarak or some supporters of this existing tyrant decided to uh, introduce violence in another way. The military receives aid and support from the United States. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina said that it was the U.S. foreign aid that directly helped the Egyptian situation, whereas Representative Ron Paul said that the foreign aid was a waste. Foreign aid was a waste of money, and that we were supporting a tyrant like Mubarak, who was sending it to Swiss bank accounts. So you see two views on foreign policy and its role in the Egypt situation. Both happen to be in the Republican Party. Mubarak's fallen, but perhaps the power structure is the same. What will happen in Egypt now? It's not clear. You see maybe some restrictions being put on the Egyptian people by this new government and a little bit of a new protesting going on. So it's not clear exactly what how this all is going to shake out. The cynical view of politics can best be summed up by George Orwell. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. From his novel 1984. And you can certainly find examples in history that back up that theory. Almost every country, including our own, has a leadership that is part of or supported by powerful business interests or political elites. It's just the way it seems to work. No one has truly gotten around that. History has had kingdoms, dictatorships. Somebody's always in control. Democracy attempts to rotate that control and thus is probably the best system out there. But powerful elites can figure out how to keep in the rotation. Orwell's other novel deals with that, Animal Farm, an allegory, where the farm animals unite to drive out the wicked human farmer, Farmer Jones. Then they seek to run the farm themselves, all together as a collective. In the end, the pigs take power and start standing on hind legs just as the humans had done, and they whip the animal. The new revolutionaries are no better than the old system. Count on Orwell for the dark vision. But I bring him up because I think that vision is in the heads of many as we examine any situation. That any revolution will be just as bad. But is it? You know, you hear both the cynical view and the optimistic view. The very fact, though, that people were able to make such a change, perhaps will give them power for some amount of time. As one protester indicated to the media, we know the way to Tahir Square. It can happen again if they don't like the new government. And the more vigilant they stay, the more power the people will have. American history begins with some of these questions. There was a great fear of such an Orwellian animal farm vision, although they didn't have that novel to benefit from yet. The constitutionalists and federalists were seen as former revolutionaries who were now betraying the cause. They were seen as monarchists who would bring a throne to America. There are all kind of rumors about it. As it turned out, it was incorrect. None of them, Washington, Rufus King, Hamilton, Fisher Ames, none of them really wanted a king on the throne of America. But they favored a strong centralized government, an industrial America. Reading the anti-federalist or anti-constitutionalist rhetoric of the 1780s, or even the early Republican printings during the Washington administration, really seems out of touch, like so much hyperventilating. None of the predictions they made happen. Jefferson and Madison were extremely disappointed, though, that those who fought in the Revolution sought to deny the people democratic rights once they took office. But 
maybe Federalists would have been worse if not for these Republican voices. Maybe we benefited as a nation from all this hyperventilating about monarchy. A Bill of Rights, after all, was added to the Constitution, and certain laws, the Alien and Sedition Laws, were repealed quickly, just seen as anti-American. The nation didn't have a standing army for much of its beginning, and that's influenced the way America's viewed its army from here on out. As we've debated a bit on the program, we have the Second Amendment, and Americans, by and large, are able to carry guns if they do so under certain legal restrictions. While we probably have to look at and reform and refine our approach to Americans owning firearms, I think over our history, you can see it had a role in us not having a tyrant. No one wanted to stay on the American throne and stay in office as president for longer than they were allowed to by voters. Even Franklin Roosevelt, who ran for four terms with the blessing of the voters, well, after a while, that was quickly seen as not such a good idea, and we changed that, so no one can even do that. So we haven't had an American tyrant with a good 230 years going here. Another thing to keep in mind is that from 1878 to 2002, we had in this country passe comitatus, which meant that the army could not operate on our own soil. You have a very different situation in the United States than you have in Egypt, where the only hope of the protesters was to look to their armed military and hope that they would defend their liberty. And it looks like they largely did. People on the streets is the most effective method of change. There are others to be sure. In America, we tend to do a little less of the people on the streets thing. We certainly had it in the 1960s. We certainly had it uh, during various labor protests uh, during the history of the country. American protests tend to be exercised through the media. It's also a very large nation. We have our capital and our business center in different places. We've never had great mass transportation, so getting from one place to another for large protests is is a bit difficult. You know, there's always the problem of where do you park the car uh, in America. So I think you don't tend to see these type of protests that can just sit in the capital city and shut the city down and shut the country down. Yeah, the closest you came is probably the 1960s. You had protests in Washington that were enormous and nothing like you know we've seen recently. But still, the Nixon administration, the Lyndon Johnson administration, were, were running things inside the White House, Pentagon, etc. So it's early, and I have a lot of thoughts about Egypt, a lot of perspective on it. You know, I want to be optimistic. It's a new dawn where we, we may see some more change in the Middle East. We're hopeful that this will lead to a democracy for those people. We can be thankful that we played some role in this, but as you indicate, we also had a role in supporting uh, Hosni Mubarak. Why did we do that, and will we stop supporting these questionable leaders? I doubt it. The American president has a dual role of leader of the free world and also commander-in-the-chief of, of the United States with the security of the United States in mind. Even a president with his finger on the reset button on foreign policy, take Jimmy Carter in the 1970s, ended up supporting the Shah, the King of Jordan, the dictator in Panama, and not always with good results. Will we give unwavering support now to some of these people? Probably not, but where there's a political or foreign policy goal, a security goal uh, for the United States, it's going to be very difficult not to. For all the bad that Hosni Mubarak did, and particularly if you're an Egyptian citizen right now, 
Uh, you're certainly seeing that in a bad light. From a Western point of view, from the United States point of view, from an Israeli point of view, Hosni Mubarak was critical for keeping the peace deal between Egypt and Israel, which if you believe what everybody in Egypt is saying, including the Muslim Brotherhood now at this time, that peace deal is part of foreign policy and cemented. And Mubarak was part of what cemented that deal. I was just looking at some photographs of the 1993 Oslo Agreement between Rabin and Arafat at the White House. And in the background are King Hussein of Jordan and Hosni Mubarak of Egypt. And those two leaders were critical for bringing Arafat to the table to have a peace deal there. So Mubarak had did a lot of bad things, and there were also some important foreign policy goals for the United States that, that he was a part of. Will we stop supporting leaders like that? Will we look at the ground situation? And the, the Obama administration might. In the Middle East, they might. But I can't say that throughout American history we're going to, to always do that. And the other thing to contend with in the world we live in in 2010 is you have other significant and well-financed powers out there now, Russia, China, others who uh, may have different foreign policy goals, even where we give up on a leader. Jason White writes, Hi, Bruce. I was reading a New York Times article about Mitch Daniels, the governor of Indiana, and he calls himself a Whig. As the article says, Apparently, Mr. Daniels likes to describe himself as a Whig after the 19th century political party, whose modernizing agenda attracted Abraham Lincoln and Henry Clay. Could you touch on what the Whig party was about? Well, of course, Jason, thank you for that. And the Whigamores, those Scottish horsemen, Scottish rebels, and now Republican governors of Indiana and other places possibly running for president, Whigs. Sure, well, it goes back to British politics, where the Whig was the country party versus the Tories, which was seen as the court party, the pro-king party. The Whigs were a populist party. The name comes from the Scottish horsemen I alluded to. In England, it was a pro-industrial, southeast England, pro-business, pro-merchants, pro-shipping, suspicious of the king, defenders of the countryside-type movement. They supported the colonists and better treatment of the American colonists in Parliament, while the Tory party was loyal to King George III, Lord North, was really King George's hand-picked prime minister. Significant Whigs in British politics, the Duke of Rockingham, Edward Burke, these were leaders of this faction. Whigs were our France, the Friends of America in Parliament, and the type of people that resembled, actually, most of those settling in the United States, particularly those in New England. The people that would join the Whig political party in England were very similar. They were people from the Southeast. They were probably support, many of them supporters of Parliament, or their relatives were supporters of Parliament during the Civil War. Same type of people that moved to Massachusetts. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything. SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. 
Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So when Henry Clay was looking for a name for a group of people who in the 1830 midterm elections stood up to the court of Andrew Jackson, a president they felt was going too far, Clay called them Whigs. And that name had a reservoir of appreciation because if you look at the two British parties at the time, the Whigs and the Tories, right? It wasn't really a labor party at this point. It was Whigs and Tories. The Whigs were the ones that had supported us. The Tories, that was a name we used for loyalists in America, people who were traitors, uh, you know, if, if you considered them during the revolution. Tories were loyalists. So the Whig name had a reservoir of goodwill, and that's why when Henry Clay used it, the name stuck. The party became an anti-Democrat, anti-Jackson party, aimed at trimming presidential power a bit. They didn't like the idea of a mandate. The president had a constitutional role, and that was it. On the other hand, they were a pro-business party, and that's why they became part of the incubator for the Republican Party. The fact that they only had two presidents, well, four really, but not really, Harrison, Tyler, Taylor, and Fillmore. Tyler wasn't really a Whig. He just didn't like Andrew Jackson. But that doesn't speak to how important the party was as the opposition party in America from 1830 to 1856. Several close elections. They split up in 18, say after the 1852 election, over the issue of slavery and nativism. That divided the party. There were northern Whigs and southern Whigs, and they disagreed over slavery. The party couldn't continue. In a form, it did. Even in the 1860 election, many of the folks in the Constitutional Union Party, where the candidate was John Bell, one of the four parties running in 1860, were Southern Whigs. So Whiggery was very much alive just by another name. As the article alluded to, Abraham Lincoln was a Whig, and in a sense never stopped being a Whig. His values were the values of that party he eulogized. Henry Clay. He eulogized uh, Zachary Taylor, who had died. As for Mr. Daniels, who was George W. Bush's budget director, there is one ironic note. The Whig Party was against the annexation of Texas, the state of his former employer and president's origin. But I do find the latest use of the name interesting. If you Google, you'll see that there's modern Whig parties out there. And uh, I just hope that everyone knows who's using it, the tenets of that party in the the 19th century. Don McNougal writes, Between 1933 and 1937, the U.S. Supreme Court declared six of Roosevelt's eight major New Deal programs unconstitutional and overturned the legislation. The primary reason for rejecting the new laws was that the court believed Congress had overstepped its authority under the Interstate Commerce Clause and was infringing states' rights. Could you talk more about it? Yes, uh, the Four Horsemen was the nickname given by the press to four members of the Supreme Court that uh, were ruling on some of these cases between 1932 and 1937. They were Pierce Butler, named after the delegate to the Constitutional Convention, James Clark McReynolds, George Sutherland, and Willis Van Devanter. These four judges uh, were posed 
by the liberals Brandeis, Cardozo, and Harlan Stone. Sometimes the Chief Justice, who is Charles Evans Hughes, former Republican candidate for president, and Justice Owen Roberts, were in the middle. Sometimes Hughes would vote with the liberals, Roberts with the conservatives, and sometimes they'd both go with the conservatives. There are a couple of uh, pieces of legislation of the New Deal that they voided. One was the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which enforced uh, farm pricing. There was a railroad and coal mining regulation bills. The most significant piece of legislation, however, that the court voided was the National Recovery Act. The National Recovery Act was passed in the flurry of legislation in the first congressional session right after you know, Roosevelt took office. It had a lot of elements to it. One is that you created this government agency and that it would create private-public partnerships all over the country. They would have parades with a Blue Eagle. Stores would have a Blue Eagle in the window, and that would mean they supported the NRA policies. But more than that, there would be all throughout the nation boards that were created of local businessmen working with the government. And uh, they would in maybe set prices, set business practices, etc., where they tried to enforce it on a poultry processing plant in New York. The poultry processors, the uh, Schecters, took them to court, and they won in the Supreme Court, and the National Recovery Act was declared un- unconstitutional. What was most damaging about that decision, however, is that it was unanimous. And even uh, Cardozo and Brandeis, who Franklin Roosevelt sympathized with politically, they were liberal like him, they also ruled it unconstitutional. Brandeis in particular felt that by working with big business, the government was in collusion with them and was forcing out small businesses. You could certainly make that case. It was an attempt to keep prices up, but Prices up may not work for every business, may put small people out of business. So uh, Brandeis didn't like it. That was declared unconstitutional. Roosevelt tried his court packing plan, didn't work. Eventually, when Justice Van Devanter resigned because Congress had voted uh, that they could give him a pension, (laughs) see how these things work sometimes, the court then balance changed and started uh, voting for some of the New Deal legislation. A couple things were not cha- were not challenged by the Supreme Court. However, Social Security uh, was seen within the role of uh, of Congress. For instance, WPA these weren't challenged. Cameron Foster writes, Bruce, a technical question. I'm having a crack at doing my own podcast series on the history of Japan, but my sound quality is bad. What equipment and software do you use? Well, uh, Cameron, I I wanted to air this question because, as I always say, I I think it's great that you have your history of, uh, I believe it's called a Short History of Japan podcast, and I think it's great that several other listeners are doing podcasts, and I encourage anyone who has a particular interest and has the time to put into it to do a podcast. You need a couple of things here. Good microphone. Audio-Technica is a good brand, but there are others. You need a mixer. You could have a compressor. You don't need it. But what you do need is a thingamajing, I call it. Uh, It's really a USB audio interface that takes the sound from the audio and makes it digital before the computer. Uh, Those who have been listening to this program for a long time, you heard the days when I had a lousy uh, microphone. And part of it is that the sound was going right into the computer. You've got to get sound out of the computer. 
you know, these computers are very noisy inside and you put a microphone in and it's picking up and there's, you know, static and things like that. So you take it out and then make it a digital signal before it gets to the computer. That helps. You know, how much it costs, it's going to cost a couple hundred dollars. Anyway, you know, it could cost up to a thousand dollars, depending on the type of uh, equipment you want. I used a company called BSW and they had a service called Podcast Veteran, which basically made it easy enough. You just get that and you're done. Not doing a commercial for them. I don't get any remuneration for that. It's just that they did have what appeared to me to be the, the simplest system for someone who's doing a simple voice audio podcast. They just had all the elements you need in one package. But, you know, you got to save up some money. It's not uh, free to get that kind of equipment. So I always say focus on your content. Make the best podcast on Japanese history out there. And then eventually, you know, you you can save up and and get better equipment. I strongly encourage listeners to do their own podcast. And I know if you have. It's a lot of work. The iTunes site is replete with, you know, ghost town podcasts where the last podcast was done in 2008 and the person moved on. I mean, people have lives. Creative people, the type of people who do podcasts, tend to wander. I've had myself, you know, I had to give myself a mental electric fence as I'm always wandering off in a million directions and say, no, you've got to focus on history and politics. I still will write that novel about Buenos Aires one of these days, but, you know, focus, focus, and miles to go before I sleep. Eric Anderson asks, Talking about the political violence episode, hey Bruce, it was Anton Cermak, mayor of Chicago in the 30s, not the mayor of Miami, that was killed during the assassination attempt on FDR, although some historians believe Cermak was the target because of a falling out with the Chicago outfit. Okay, thanks Eric, and I did look that up a bit, and yes, I did make a mistake. It was The assassination attempt occurred in Miami, but the mayor that was killed was the current mayor of Chicago. He'd been fairly recently elected. Cermak uh, was Eastern European. His political and organization skills helped create one of the most powerful political organizations of his day. And uh, he helped create a powerful democratic machine and beat the Republican corrupt Republican Bill Thompson. He had support from Franklin Roosevelt. He was running And he was able to convince numerous immigrant groups and Chicago's growing black community to vote for him. He built a coalition and he won. 58% of the vote in the election of 1931 and ended both Bill Thompson's career and the Republican Party as a force in Chicago. No Republican has held office since Cermak. Now, there are rumors that Cermak was shot and that he was the intended victim instead of Roosevelt. But it also could have been one of history's many crazy guys killing politicians. The shot that killed Cermak, for instance, appears not to have been aimed at him directly, but was part of a wild series of four shots after someone in the crowd grabbed his arm, or several people grabbed his arm. The killer, Giuseppe Zingara, was a semi-unemployed bricklayer and apparently blamed the president for his disability and his unemployment. How close we came to not having a President Roosevelt. What I find amazing about it is that, like most of these assassinations, if they are for any purpose, people don't get anything close to what they might be looking for. Had this bricklayer killed the liberal Democrat, we would have ended up with a conservative Democrat, John Nance Gardner of Texas. 
You might have seen a few modest work programs. Gardner did propose that as Speaker of the House. But there would have been no New Deal, because Gardner couldn't even continue as Vice President under Roosevelt for more than two terms. He just didn't support the New Deal, really, and kept quiet uh, as Vice President. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. But I suspect someone like Zangara wouldn't really care. He had no political motive. Zangara became enraged when he learned that there weren't any newsreel cameras to film his execution. And apparently his last word was, goodbye to all poor people everywhere, push the button. There is an apocryphal story, perhaps, en route to the hospital. Anton Cermak, mayor of Chicago, told FDR, I'm glad it was me and not you, Mr. President. And that's inscribed in a plaque near where the incident happened. Like many last words, it's hard to say if those were true, but it's certainly a fitting tribute. So thank you, uh, for Eric, for that correction, and it's a correction that served to uh, tell a good story. Tony May writes, Bruce, I'm well on my way to writing a book about each president. It's been a very interesting journey, but I do have a question. Is there anything in the Constitution that would keep Bill Clinton from becoming Obama's vice president and then becoming president if Obama either died in office, is removed, or resigned? I've been reading both opinions. One says that the 12th Amendment only applies to qualifications, age, citizenship, etc., while the 22nd deals with elections. Obviously, the case has never been tested, but it's unclear to me that the 22nd Amendment would keep someone from being vice president, even if they can't be elected president. Well, Tony, thanks, and I wish you luck with your reading a book about each president, and keep talking about it on the, the Facebook site for My History Could Beat Up Your politics. like to hear more about that. Even though I'll debate it a little here, I don't think this question is even a debate. I just think it's an easy uh, constitutional question that wouldn't even be granted cert at the Supreme Court. I've seen some worries about the so-called Putin play and the like, that someone who has been president will just put themselves in as, as vice president now. But it's pretty clear to me it can't happen constitutionally. The 12th Amendment says no one constitutionally ineligible to be president can be vice president. I don't think there's any other way to read that than to read it that Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, who are constitutionally ineligible to become president, cannot become president. Now, the 12th wouldn't have applied to these types of things when it was written, but you added, because there was no ineligibility, there was no limit to terms, but the 22nd added a new ineligibility. 
If it ever got to the intentions of the 12th Amendment or uh, that line of the 12th Amendment that bans someone who's ineligible to be president from being vice president, it actually is relevant to the scenario, I think, the intent there. The intent in the 12th was definitely to eliminate a backdoor way of sneaking through an ineligible. Now, in those days, they weren't talking about three-term presidents, right? Because that wasn't something that would make you ineligible. They were thinking about age. They were thinking about nationality. They didn't want anyone making a Bonaparte, who, by the way, uh, Napoleon's brother was living right outside Philadelphia for some time, a vice president in order to sneak him in the back door as president. Not that that was going to happen, but, you know, it was a fear on, on many folks' minds that something like that would happen. But the things American deci- Americans decided would make a president ineligible changed when, in the 20th century, we wrote the 22nd Amendment. Americans decided that somebody being president for more than two terms was something that would make you ineligible. Once they did that, the Constitution doesn't acknowledge any difference between amendments and the original Constitution. Once it's added, it's in there. For ease of referring, it was decided that amendments would be added and numbered after the original document. But in any matter of law, they exist right in the document. So the 22nd is right in there. Ineligibility president by the 12th, ineligible to be vice president. The time of when it was passed doesn't apply. That's what I think. And uh, so, so I think that Jimmy Carter or George H.W. Bush are the only two people that could be made vice president who are currently former presidents. Of course, it's not going to happen for so many reasons, but one of which would be that a party wouldn't want to nominate someone just to ensure a constitutional fight if the person wins. Zach Workowicz writes, Bruce, I recently started listening to your podcast. I spend a lot of time on the road for my job, and it helps me, and uh, my drives across Iowa makes them more interesting. I work for a labor union, and that is sort of what my question is about. I would love to get your take on the past, present, and maybe future of the labor movement impact and interactions with politics. I bought the archive last week, and I haven't heard too much about it yet. I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate the question. And yeah, you know, the labor movement's probably an area I'm a little weak on. I would that. So I do, and I plan a podcast on the labor movement and its beginnings. It's a very alien concept in the United States. I see the turn of the century as the turning point for them to an extent. It's the point at which 1,600,000 members of the AFL which is a conservative but growing organization at the time. Probably by the 1930s, you saw the full realization and World War II in the aftermath as the zenith of unions. Then we've seen a slow decline. Some of it is that many of us work in management, and management has been expanded. Or these days, many of us work in jobs where our work is so individual. You know, perhaps we're salespeople, perhaps we're architects, perhaps we're computer programmers and designers, such individual work that unions might limit us. We're not the same as anybody else that would be in a union with us. So I think there's a variety of reasons why unions are in the state they are today. You know, we could look at how presidents interacted with unions, Grover Cleveland ordering troops to quell unrest, 
Theodore Roosevelt initiating the mind workers to discuss grievances with mine owners in the White House, first president to do so. Woodrow Wilson, after much political consideration, adding unions to the Clayton Act, adding the provision that unions could no longer face challenges of antitrust violations. See, first when they attempted work stoppages, boycotts, strikes, they were slapped with antitrust legislation as if they were a giant corporation. They were seen as the same as a robber baron. So the Clayton Act changed that. It was something Wilson did with a lot of political calculation. The growing ranks of labor unions were going to help him in his 1916 election. But in the same year, Woodrow Wilson also ordered federal troops to violently gun down miners in Colorado in order to break a strike that the state National Guard and company security could not stop. So to some extent, the more things changed, the more they stayed the same. As I indicated, as a brief look, I'll touch more on these events. So what you're kind of getting here is my open scrapbook, what I have so far. You know, union memberships down in 1983, there were 17 million workers versus 2007. There's 15 million salary and wage workers covered by unions. That's a decline. But it's even worse than the number decline because the population increased in the U.S. between 1983 and 2007. So really, we went from 20% salary and wage workers represented by unions, not all members, but they were represented or covered by union contracts, to now, or in 2007, 12% represented by unions. And as we'll speak about in another question, these numbers are even inflated a bit by public sector unions, where they're much stronger, dropping much greater in the private sector. Certain states do a little better. New York dropped from 32% to 25% between 1983 and 2007, but still at a high percentage of union workers. Georgia went down from 11 to 4%, as did Arkansas, an indication that the drop is greater in right-to-work states. These numbers are from the U.S. Census Statistical Abstract of the United States. On average, union workers earn a wage of 857 versus an average weekly wage of 663 for non-union workers. That's in 2007, against census data. So there's an argument for unions. They do get something for their members. For the dues they pay, on average, union workers do better. Not much more to say than this. This is more of an IOU, and we'll discuss unions more as we move along. Corey Smith writes, Bruce, I'm curious if you've ever considered expanding your podcast or doing a separate one entirely dealing with more international topics. It's not like you could ever run out of material either way, but I think there's a definite paucity of global politics history podcasts out there. Thanks, Corey. I appreciate it. I tend to focus on American history. One has to have scope. You could, however, go into a lot of different histories. I, I plan to do a little more, especially French and British, Spanish, where there is a direct influence on the American colonies and thus on the nation of America, particularly British, where a lot of our constitutional rights go to the rights of Englishmen. And then you got to look at British history to see what they're really talking about. Jason White writes, do you know of a time in history where the federal and state employees were under attack, I mean, without any scandalous activities by a political party? or the nation at large. As with any big company organization, there will be too many people working there. But it seems to be more than that. What are your thoughts? Well, Jason, this is a you know complicated question, but it definitely is a relevant issue to today 
because I believe that many governors in states across the country, and you could definitely say it's bipartisan right now, but it's particularly a strategy of the Republican Party, are taking on public employee unions. And by virtue of that, taking on public employees. And among these are teachers in some cases, firemen, cops, state workers. I think there's two sides. On one hand, state workers and federal workers face an unusual amount of scorn and criticism these days because I think that the private sector has shrunk benefits and the public sector benefits have shrunk, but not as quickly. In some cases, public sector workers don't contribute to their health insurance. That's rare these days, but where they do, it's less often than private sector workers. In a recession, when salaries just are frozen immediately in the freewheeling private sector, the public sector has small but guaranteed increases, and they look pretty good by comparison. So always in a recession, I think you're going to see more of this type of criticism. On the other hand, the one area that I think is a bit unfair, we were talking about unions before, is the power that public sector unions have, not just in the normal type of things that that unions can do, boycotts, strikes, in many cases the public sector workers can't do that, but the political power that these unions have. One thing that you're seeing is Democrats backed by labor taking on public unions and state houses. At the same time, the National Republican Party is seeing advantages in taking on public unions as they normally support Democrats. You see Puente, you'll see uh, Chris Christie, the new governor of Wisconsin, they're all adopting this strategy. And there's an interesting dynamic now between private sector unions and public sector unions They are in league, but sometimes they're not in league. Public sector is about 40% unionized. The private sector, about 8%. Look at this in in New York. Gary LaBarbera, the president of the Building and Construction Trade Councils of New York, recently signed on to the Committee to Save New York, a coalition of business and real estate executives that seeks to raise $10 million to raise a campaign in support Incoming Governor of New York Andrew Cuomo's plan to take on government employees in New York State by cutting wages and pensions. Several New York City labor activists who spoke off the record said that La Barbera is willing to take on public employees over pay and wages in order to free up money from the state budgets that could go towards construction projects. Republicans make that private-public divide as well. Uh, Tim Pluente argues the moral case for unions. Protecting working families from exploitation does not apply to public employment. Government employees today are among the most protected, well-paid employees in the country. Ironically, public sector unions have become the exploiters, and working families once again need someone to stand up for them. Los Angeles Mayor Villarigosa, over the past five years, while partnering with students, parents, and nonprofits, business groups, and higher education, there has been one unwavering roadblock to reform the teachers' union leadership. The issue that the Los Angeles mayor, who's a Democrat, is having is with the practice of seniority-based layoffs. He wants to end this and be able to lay off based on merit. He says it's disproportionately affecting our poorest schools. So you're seeing this tension. Is it always fair? Well, I mean, if you look at Ploetti's quote, for instance, saying that the public sector unions are now the exploiters. Well, you know, and they're all well paid. They could be. But if you don't have a union, in a few years, you're not going to be anymore. So, I mean, you can see both sides of that question. 
where I come down or where I can see a real divide, and I think a lot of people can right now, is the practice of pensions. A pension or a defined benefit as opposed to a defined contribution is very different from what most people in the private sector have where they have 401k plans and I think eventually going to see a continued clamor to convert those pensions which were are a dedicated future payment you know into perpetuity when people are living longer and turning that into a 401k plan which will be similar to what those in the private sector have so those are the battles i think it's wrong to vilify these people and i think that just going to make it harder you know have sympathy for people working people working in the public sector particularly those on the lower end of the wage scale and uh sympathy for those managers that have to hire people when people working there are seen as villains and thieves you know we hadn't done a questions podcast in a while so i'm glad to get some of those uh, partially out of the way i want to thank you for listening the website is myhistorycompeteupyourpolitics.com go to the facebook site post a comment there either for me or for the other listeners we did reach that threshold of 1300 members of the facebook site so pretty excited about that and if you do like the program Please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening.